Welcome to Sober Sisters Talk. I'm MG. And I'm Elizabeth Pudwell. Welcome. The speaker series happens once a month. This will be part of our weekly Zoom meeting that happens every Friday night. If you would like to be a part of that meeting, you have to be female. And send us an email at SoberSistersTalk at gmail.com. If you would like to tell your story, please reach out to SoberSistersTalk at gmail.com. We want to have more stories out there in order to help other women. And here's our next speaker. Thanks for listening. Also, we'd love to invite you to a Zoom meeting this Friday night at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. If you're interested, email SoberSistersTalk at gmail.com and we'll send you the meeting information and password. We hope to see you this Friday. Hi, everybody. My name is Cheryl, and I am a recovering sex and love addict, among other things. It's hard to tell you exactly when my addiction first began, because I'm pretty sure that I've been affected by a dis-ease in one way or another my entire life. And looking at the behavior of others in my family, I know that SLAA has been a generational disease. Ultimately, my life in recovery began in 1998, which gave me hope. It enabled me to see that I could have a do-over, that I could make the wrongs in my life better, and I had an opportunity to heal relationships when the time was right. Recovery had given me the ability to look at myself, to get honest, truly honest, to do something different in my life. One of the biggest lessons was to forgive myself, to have compassion for myself, and to desire to love myself. This would take years of therapy and recovery. The most important relationship is the one with myself, which I struggle with at times, usually when I'm hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. I had originally joined Al-Anon, and I didn't always feel like I fit in because the one affected most from alcohol was me, and I had things in my life that I had done in my earlier years that I couldn't talk about in Al-Anon. After the death of my mother, I went on antidepressants, and I devoured up every self-help book or tape I could find. This was three years into my marriage, which unfortunately had little foundation. I was 25, I met him in a bar, and on our first date, having few boundaries, and after drinking too much, I told him about all the painful things in my life that I was still holding on to. I wanted him to know everything about me. I was attracted to him, and he was crazy about me. We had fun together working on our house, and I loved him, but not in the way I'd hoped to. In my mind, he had potential and was a good worker. I tried to get him to go back to school so he could get an inside job because when it rained, he didn't make any money for us to save to start our family. I gave him an allowance (laughs) for gasoline and his lunch each day, although I couldn't see how controlling I was until I got into a book study in a 12-step program. Because we were unable to have children biologically together, we were saving money for donor insemination. The loss of my brother and years of infertility treatment 
Let us to separate. It wasn't until 2004 when I first started attending SLA meetings. After telling someone I trusted in Al-Anon about my earlier days and the shame I was still feeling, I just didn't get it. I didn't understand the program, but I did feel somewhat of a kinship to the woman there as we shared a lot of the same experiences. I also attended a beach retreat early on. I hardly knew anyone, but I could relate to their stories, so I kept coming back. I was in and out, mostly out of the program, until one day while watching TV, I saw Oprah and Ivana Van Zandt, and they asked their audience, all woman, how many of you grew up with an absent father and were promiscuous. And I stood up with the whole audience. Me too, I said. And it was like finding a missing puzzle piece of a life, of my life, a possible explanation for the diseasiness I'd been holding on to for so long. The next day I reached out to a lady that I had been that had been a temp sponsor for me at the beach retreat and I asked her if she would be my sponsor. We met, and I ended up coming back to Swan in 2003. <clears throat> it was 2016, and I was on a break from school. I was attending the U of H downtown to get my BSW degree, and instead of finding a job, I found him, or he found me online. He chose me. He was tall, handsome, had beautiful blue eyes, was funny, and I was immediately addicted. I remember talking to my mom about him as if he might really be the one. We spent hours on the phone talking to each other until I could stand it no more. So before I met him, I was sure I was ready. I felt good. My self-esteem was healthy. I felt school was going great. And I'd spent a lot of time in the gentle path to recovery. I had been attending SLAA and met some wonderful, strong women. I thought I was ready for a relationship and that I would be able to make healthy choices. I found out as we tried to find the right, I found out as he tried to find the right time to tell me a couple weeks into the relationship that he was an ex-convict because I chose not to, that, wait a minute, but I chose not to let that bother me because he told me his story several times and he hadn't hurt anyone. This time after 20 years of recovery, I was sure I had more knowledge and knew what I wanted, but my disease was still at bay. After becoming head over heels with this man, it was hard for me to take the red flag seriously. When we would argue, it would become emotionally abusive after I called him lying to me, and when I kicked him out of my house at least eight times, I still had a hard time letting him go. The fantasy that I'd made up in my head for almost three years was so strong, I couldn't let him go, but I did. It wasn't until I was in a low, low place where my life felt almost totally out of control that I found hope. I saw that I did have something to give and I knew I could go on after I told him goodbye for the second time. 
I found a sponsor. I made a list of awesome women I could reach out to. And I started attending as many meetings as I could. I started working the steps, working out at the gym, and doing things that made me feel good about myself. At 59, I graduated college. I, I did service work at meetings and workshops. And in September, it will be a year and a half since I've been away from him, my qualifier. I still get triggered. I have good and bad days, but I have tools today and understand more about myself and my disease. <clears throat> Not long after I told him goodbye, I would see him casually driving through my neighborhood. He has no reason to be here. I believe that he thought that if I saw him, I would come running back. One day on the way out of my neighborhood, on the way to work, he drove right beside my car. I just sat there and watched him drive by. Previously, I would get fearful and try to get away in my car, but this time I didn't. I still pay particularly close attention <clears throat> to white pickup trucks of a certain model, but in the future I hope to forget the purpose of doing that. One of the reasons why I was fearful of leaving him was because he was supporting me financially when I went into withdrawal. I spent a lot of time looking for a job, and I prayed, prayed almost daily for work until it seemed a job just seemed to fall into my lap. <clears throat> Today I found out there's a meeting planned for me to get some new training at my job. I don't even know what it is, but I'm just excited about it. Um, I was the oldest of four siblings. I had three younger brothers growing up until 1989, when my brother's life was taken two years after he had been diagnosed with schizophrenia at 25. It was totally unexpected, and it's the first time that the bottom fell out of my life and gave me the idea to look at my previous 28 years, which finally enabled me to get professional help. I had never heard of SLAA at the time and only knew that I needed help with the incredible pain I was feeling. <clears throat> it would be 13 years later when I knew I had to do something different. I divorced in 95 and in 1998 I was living with my mother. We could not communicate our feelings to each other and I could no longer keep my anger inside. Upon telling her my feelings one evening, she just got up and left the room. Thank God I was seeing a therapist at that time. He told me of a program for people who've grown up in alcoholism. That would be my first 12-step meeting, in which everyone there was talking about what was going on in my head and if they knew my thoughts and feelings. I knew I was in the right place at that time. I ultimately moved out of her house and into an apartment with my two labs, who were my greatest comfort and support. I've been teaching myself how to type and learning Microsoft Office. I would be getting into the administrative field and away from a job at Rambles. It was also the time of AOL and You've Got Mail. I was mesmerized by the technology and the fun I thought I could have. 
I put myself on a web dating site and began seeing a married man online that was at least 20 years older than me and lived in Austin. <clears throat> he came down to see me in his Porsche one Sunday afternoon, took me to dinner, and we stayed the night at a hotel that was close to where I worked so I could casually get up and go to work the next day. Although I went on a few dates and had some nice dinners, I never saw him again. The next 15 years, uh, which I believe is my anorexia and uh, deprivation of close relationships, I would devote myself to my job instead of looking for another relationship. I knew I had no idea how to be in a healthy relationship, and that was something I had always wanted in my life to be married and to have kids. I grew up with a father that was there most of the time physically, but never emotionally. I think part of my anorexia was the fear I'd had of being rejected by another man. <clears throat> On a family vacation one year when I was 15, I experienced for the first time in my life what I thought to be unconditional love from a male. We were at my mother's cousin's house, and this was my fourth cousin. He was a year younger than me, and he showed me a lot of attention. He looked me in the eyes and spoke to me, and then he waited for a reply. We would go swimming, him, me, and my brothers in his family's pool, and afterwards one day sitting in his bedroom, he began to comb out my wet hair. I had never experienced this kind of attention, even at the age of 15. One afternoon, as my family was with his family, me and him went to see the movie Tommy. The, at least twice, him with his arm around me. This little girl, Cheryl, was in heaven, in a world where she felt cared about, loved, and wanted. Unfortunately, because he was my cousin, he proclaimed he could not have that type of relationship with me. No one close to me had ever explained that there were different types of love. I was in love. I was in love, and life without that type of love, I refused to go without, and I attempted suicide. The time when my love and sex addiction was probably most prevalent in the beginning because this disease is progressive was after I'd been in this relationship and my family moved to a small town just outside of Houston. I believe I was looking to replace that relationship and trying to replicate the feelings I had felt from him from someone else. But I was impatient and when I started drinking and doing drugs to be the type of person I thought I needed to be, a looser and more casual person with less fear, I didn't take much of an inventory of these relationships before I got into them. What mattered to me was looks and kindness, and when I get that attention, I was then pretty well hooked, usually. I used my looks and the way I dressed and a few alcoholic drinks as my power. <clears throat> I believed that that's what I needed to get him hooked. That was how you did it, I thought. Speaking of power, 
before my teen years, I began to believe or hoped anyway that there was a power greater than me, greater than the insanity that I lived with in my family. And it wasn't until I saw my youngest brother walk for the first time when he was 13 that I believed. I just tend to forget most of the time. So I'm living in a new town where no one really knows me. And I met a girl who really didn't care about me, but wanted to have someone with her as she partied. And I was basically set up to be her boyfriend's friend, whom I really didn't like. It took years of recovery to see that this relationship with her was almost identical to another relationship I'd had with someone who I thought was a friend several years earlier before we'd moved. This girl asked if I wanted to walk with her to her boyfriend's house, and that was it. And I was, that was it for me. I was just so excited to have someone at school invite me to do something with them. But I didn't realize she was bringing me along to be her boyfriend's friend that night. So, um, I grew up with a mother whose needs were more important than mine, and I could never foresee the consequences of my behavior, nor did I feel safe and truly cared for. When I started acting out or surviving and looking for love, I was seen as a shameful person to my family, but no one knew or seemed to care about my behavior, how I really felt or that it could lead to future problems. Upon the next three years, I made myself as available as I could. I was mad at my parents and the last place I wanted to be was at home. This was from the age of 16 to 18. My mother was tired of trying to control me until she locked me up in a hospital for staying out all night. This only introduced me to my next boyfriend who would eventually get me pregnant. I was terrified because I never thought this could happen. And I was terrified of becoming my mother. She had become pregnant with me when their parents decided they would get married. Mm. And she would end up eventually trying to raise four children on her own because my father was busy drinking and working and sleeping. I was terrified that if I had a child with birth defects like my two youngest brothers were born with. So I had an abortion. I would then go on as if nothing happened and repeat the same type of behavior with the drugs, alcohol, and sleeping around until it happened again. And then it happened again. These were the years where anything goes because nothing else mattered. During those three years, I truly became a different person, and my life took on events I could have never imagined. I was kicked out of school for missing too many days. I was stoned one day and drove a guy's car, parked it, and lost it downtown somewhere. Later that day, his father came to my house and I gave him the keys. I moved out of our house and into an abusive boyfriend's apartment, and we would go to Georgia and Florida. 
Then I hitched, I was hitchhiking out of Katy into Houston to meet one of my boyfriends. One night, a policeman picked me up when he saw me hitchhiking. He brought me home, and when I heard my mother outside with him laughing, I had a feeling all was okay, and I went upstairs and went to bed. She never said anything to me about this. I was hanging around a group of bikers, which I would hitchhike to see and party with. And after then, then after I turned 18, I was in an auto accident that nearly took my life, and I was unconscious for three days. I was tired at 18 after all of this. And I remember telling somebody that if I wrote a book about my life, no one would believe it. However, today I think they would. My life calmed down just a little bit after my car accident. My parents divorced and I would be asked to move in with my mother and brothers in a different environment and under a roof with my family, ultimately whom I tried to stay away from. This gave me time to think, which I had spent little time doing, and I look back at the last three years of my life, of what I could remember, and I was overwhelmed with so much grief and pain. I couldn't believe all that I had done, and my mother heard me desperately crying and took me to see a therapist. Because my mother, father, uh, my mother left my father, she had to go go out and work, and that meant there was no one home to take care of my youngest brother. He has an intellectual and developmental disability. He cannot speak, and at that time, he could not walk. He would have to go into a state hospital because at that time, my mother could not find anyone to take care of him. This was one of the most painful times in our life taking him and dropping him off in another town and leaving him there. My mother and I would cry most of the way home. It wasn't until we lost my other brother with schizophrenia that my mother found a place for my brother to live in Houston. Although he had learned to walk and feed himself during those painful years, it was very traumatic. Because of my brother's disabilities and because of my father's drinking, my mother was hard to live with. When she died unexpectedly in 2019, I became my youngest brother's legal guardian. I miss her very much. And, I, and I've been able to see my, my youngest brother little due to COVID. SLAA has taught me to look at the different ways of healing in my life, how to pay attention to my inner and outer needs, how to comfort my inner child, my little Cheryl, because I choose not, I choose to be, I choose not to be around the neglect or unhealthy attitudes of people any longer. I'm truly grateful for all the women at SLAA and all recovery programs for what you, my higher power, and this program had given me your love, experience, strength, and hope. I experienced from an early age discomfort and pain until, and until it's, I was strong enough to feel it. I don't believe I have a memory of it. But as I got older, I turned my anger inside into depression. And when I wasn't getting the attention at home, 
and started getting other people and things outside of myself their attention, I acted on those feelings and must have subconsciously believed it against my addiction. Today, I listen to my feelings and process them. I have trustworthy people in my life today, and I can talk and get feedback. I don't have to struggle or go through anything alone anymore. I've gained so much working the 12 steps of SLAA. So I am so grateful. I'm a sponsee. I'm a sponsor. And I am a recovering sex and love addict. Thank you all for being here. That's it for this month's speaker meeting. Stay tuned to Sober Sisters Talk for next month's speaker. Thank you.